Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poloin. For this episode, in my collaboration with Wines of Germany, I decided to focus on how a new generation of German wine professional is redefining the industry. In the first half of this episode, we heard from Micah and Dörte Neckel, who are the fifth generation in their family to make Pinot Noir in the northern region of Ahr. Next, we're headed south to the Falls, where we'll chat with Andreas Hutvel, who helped the 300-year-old estate of Dr. Deinhard rebrand to von Winning in 2007. Von Winning is simultaneously a new and an old estate. It's modern while also being deeply traditional. Often when we talk about the next generation, we're referring specifically to people. But Von Winning as a winery symbolizes the mentality of this next generation that sees its past, present, and future in the context of not only Germany's rich enological history, but also as an increasingly globalized wine market. Andreas and I are good friends and drinking buddies, so whenever he's in Houston, we always meet up, but it's generally beer, not wine, that we're drinking. Today, we settled for Gigi Riesling. I hope you understand. But uh, here's our conversation. Here's Andreas. Hey there. Hey, what's up? How are you? Great. Yourself? Good. I'm good. You've got a nice microphone set up over there. You're decked out. You've got your Von Vinning polo on. You're set. Of course. Your microphone doesn't look too shitty neither. No, no, it, it, it does its job. It does its job. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, I'm excited to do this uh, chat. Um, and I think it's fun, especially because it was almost two years ago. It was last September or two Septembers ago that we saw one another at the winery um, on the eve of me running the uh, Berlin Marathon. So it'll be fun to kind of jump in and kind of hear what's happened over the past couple of years at the winery. And um, I've got my bottles. I opened these up about maybe half an hour ago. Perfect. So I've got, got those ready to go. Nice. Um, I checked them. They're great. So, um, and we can just kind of incorporate like those into the conversation, however it works. Um, but, uh, and then wines of Germany, you know, they had said that they, uh, that this topic they think is a little bit broader um, and should work well. So kind of happy to take your lead. I'm sure it's a conversation you've had before talking about the transition from Deinhard to Von Vinning. So we can hash it out however you'd like. Sure. Um, maybe maybe a good starting off point would be uh, kind of talking about faults in general, because I think the way a lot of us learn about the faults is the amount of diversity there is in the wines that are made. Um, and that's in part because of a very diverse kind of soil. The geology, you know, is very much impacted by, you know, the ancient coral reefs that were there, the amount of limestone, ancient seashells. And then, you know, it it's a very productive region. You make so much wine in the faults. I mean, I think there's more Riesling planted in faults than there is in all of Austria, Australia, and the United States combined. Um, and it amounts for, what, 25% of total plantings in all of Germany in the faults, right? So it's a very big region, a very diverse region. And I thought you might be able to help us kind of break it down a little bit. Absolutely. So you're you're right in saying it's um, 
it's Germany's second largest wine area, um, almost 25,000 hectares. And the total area of um, in Germany under vines is 100,000 hectares. So it's pretty much a little bit short of a quarter of it. Uh, the Pfalz is the largest Riesling area in the world. Nowhere else you find more Riesling planted than here. Um, of course, in general, Germany is um, um, by far the number one when it comes to Riesling. I think 44% of uh, the world's um, Riesling is, um, is or a little bit more, is in, is in Germany. And um, who would have guessed? Do you know who number two is? Uh, which country has the second largest amount of Riesling planted? Um, I don't know. Uh, the United States, Australia. It's correct. It is yeah. the United States. But uh, Riesling comes from comes from Germany, obviously, and our most important variety. But as you correctly say, there are historically there are many different uh, varieties in in the area, and this is due to um, a quite warm and and uh, agricultural friendly climate in the Pfalz. We are in the southwest of Germany. And we are situated in the Rhine Valley Rift, which is um, which goes from Basel in Switzerland in the south almost up to Frankfurt. And this Rhine Valley Rift um, was created about 50 million years ago due to the fact that Africa as a, as a continent uh, with tectonical movement is pushing into Europe's. Into Europe, the Alps, the Alp Mountains were folding up about 50 million years ago and the land up north stretched and the Rhine Valley broke. And in that process, two lines of foothills of mountains were going up. In the west, where we are, it's the Hart Mountains, covered with a, a Palatinate forest, uh, becoming the Vokes as you cross the border with Alsace, which is only 50 kilometers south of where we are. So it's one continuous mountain range covered with forest, actually the largest body of forest in Central Europe. On the other side of the valley, you have the Odenwald and further south becoming the Black Forest. In the middle is the River Rhine and in between you have a warm, sheltered and fertile area. The basis of our soils is sandstone. Behind me, you see it. 250 million year old sandstone uh, is the basis here. In addition, you mentioned coral reefs. When the Rhine Valley broke, uh, there were two oceans flowing in. There was a quite shallow uh, ocean. The climate back then was subtropical. So there were corals and logically those coral reefs were situated where on the slopes of the mountains right because uh, this was quite close to the surface there was light there was oxygen um, and uh, the corals were growing there so not everywhere but on different spots along the hard mountains as well as the vopes you find limestone actually um, we have um, ph ph levels uh, which are on all of our vineyard sites, above seven, which means um, pretty much neutral and um, uh, how do you say what more alkaline, more alkaline. Um, that was the yeah. word I'm looking. For, I was looking for, uh, which is an indication of limestone being there. But there are only certain vineyards where you really find the limestone rocks lying around, like the Ungeheuer of Forst uh, or or the Kalkofen. And um, then in, in our area, you also find a bit of volcanic basalt, which is uh, in the village Forst, one north of here. I just mentioned the Ungeheuer, but also Pechstein, Kirchenstück, uh, Jesuitengarten are yeah, the sites. Very famous vineyards because of this unique combination of sandstone, lots of limestone and basalt. 
When you go further south, um, you know, the Pfalz is um, divided into um, two main subregions, which is uh, the Mittelhardt, where we are, and further south is called the Südpfalz, uh, the south- southern part of the Pfalz. And has it always historically been divided into two areas, or is that a more recent kind of development? It's um, well. It's it has always been divided in a in a sense that um, where we are here, Deidesheim, um, Neustadt uh, on the Weinstraße, Bad Dürkheim, but especially Deidesheim and Forst, These have been the middle heart has been the. You know, the, the Pfalz is one of the classic wine regions of Europe and um, the wines are famous and sought after since since centuries. Uh, there was a time around the um, middle of the 18th, uh, end of the 18th, beginning of, a, no, it's not true, um, end, of the, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, when the German wines, including um, Riesings from the Pfalz, were the most expensive and most sought after wines in the world. They were essentially coming from here. They were coming from Deidesheim. They were coming from Forst. When you go, go into those villages, you see chateau-like wineries. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting in a beautiful sandstone building. You have seen it. And it, it, it looks a little bit um, like, a, like a chateau with uh, Baroque architecture and um, wonderful, wonderful uh, buildings. But you see that here, also historically, since, since many, many years, um, there was a lot of, uh, there was money in the area coming from wine. It has always been a high-end wine region. While the southern part of the Pfalz is until today much more um, rural, I think, um, I hope that's the right. Is that the opposite of ur- of urban? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's um, there's much more uh, agriculture. The southern part of the Pfalz has been much more and much more often in French hands, and um, it's a little bit, uh, let's say, a Sleeping Beauty, with uh, which is a little geographically a bit different. It's um, it's often warmer, it's uh, often more humid still. Um, somehow they start, usually they start picking a little bit, a little bit later than we do. They have limestone as well, but there is also, there is also places where they have, um, where they have uh, schiefer, um, which is slate, uh, which is, you don't, you don't find it here. Or uh, rotliegendes, which is like a combination of clay and sandstone with with iron, mm-hmm. which is pretty pretty red. Of course, the sandstone as well is their basis as well. So it's it's a bit different, and historically it's more different because this here, our area here, uh, in Deidesheim and around it, is was more the, let's say the, like the historic powerhouse of uh, of the of the famous and, and great Grand Cru's. Whereas, uh, as I said, uh, there is great quality in the southern part of the Pfalz, don't get me wrong. Uh, beautiful wines there, but the history is different and mm-hmm. it's, it's a bit more of a sleeping beauty, maybe. The way I always learned about uh, faults was kind of, you know, that a lot of the origins for the wineries come from, you know, the, the monastic orders that, you know, managed vineyards in like the middle ages and then i think it was like in the 1800s there was like a bavarian wine law i think like in 1828 which kind of established a lot of these more chateau like wineries that you were talking about yeah yeah it's that's correct uh, the um 
So first of all, it started with the Romans more than 2000 years ago who brought mm -hmm. uh, vines into the area, area, but not only that, also uh, the fig trees that are growing everywhere wildly came with the Romans. Um, and then, correct, monasteries, the Cistercians mostly, but also the Jesuits were working a lot on um, varietal selection, what to plant where. Um, yeah, th this was already pretty much... Um, high-end wine making if you will so and then later um wineries uh, private wineries came in and the wine law that you mentioned from 1828 uh, the Pfalz was part of bavaria back then um they did not rate uh, estates like uh, in um, like in it happened in medoc um, 1855, but in 1828, 27 years earlier, they were actually um, rating vineyards. So it was a classification done back then. And our classification system today is obviously based on it. And according to the points that were given, taxes were raised. So the best vineyards had the highest taxation. And so the small Kirchenstück of Forst, uh, which was a great and legendary vineyard back then, became the one with the highest taxation and is today still Germany's single most valuable and expensive vineyard site. But this is an, goes back to an old classification of 1828, which is 27 years before Medoc. So wow. pretty, um, pretty early. <laughs> so there's a lot of history in the fault. And von Winning can trace its roots back hundreds of years. Um, there's a long, long history at the winery. Do you want to talk a little bit about the origins for how von Winning began? Yeah. So the history goes back to 1718 when uh, Andreas Jordan um, started uh, the so-called Jordan estate in Didesheim. And in 1849, this Jordan estate has been split up between three his three children. And the three today wineries, Bassermann Jordan, Von Buhl and Von Winning came out of it. Actually, uh, Von Winning was back then um, established under the name of Deinhardt. Some of you might be familiar with um, the Deinhardt sparkling producer in uh, in Koblenz. Uh, Andreas Deinhardt, who married one of the Jordan daughters, came out of this family, but this is the only connection to his name. And then their sons was the Dr. Deinhardt. Uh, quality was very high back then already. It's um, You have seen the buildings. It's a, it's a wonderful... Uh, it's a wonderful estate and it was always a, a wine estate. And um, ultimately, um, the son-in-law of Dr. Deinhardt was Leopold von Winning. And um, he uh, was um, not only the owner, he also brought the quality to new levels. And uh, it was the first real prime time of the estate. And, you can, uh, and, and we know that Leopold von Winning ran the estate under the name of von Winning. So from 1907 until 1918, when he unfortunately died during World War I, the estate was called von Winning. Leopold von Winning was also founding member of what today is the VDP um, and the first president in the Pfalz. So we are members of the VDP, the Association of Germany's Premium Estates. Since, uh, yeah, we are founding member there since the beginning. So real prime time. And then, as I said, uh, Leopold von Winning died during World War I. The new owners, which was um, like a kind of negociant from Neustadt, um, uh, they bought the estate. 
uh, used it as a wine estate, really just as the the like the the the, the peak of their of their portfolio of their quality, but didn't either they did not want or didn't get the name of von Winning and went back to the old name Dr. Deinhardt as a brand name. And then over the, you know, these were also the decades of, um, let's say, efficiency, where um, uh, being efficient and making uh, good quality was more important than making excellent wines. Um, so a lot of treatments of the, um, in the cellar, um, very, uh, the, the, the uh, vineyards, the rows became wider and wider, more and more machines and so forth. So wines definitely always very good. The, the sites are fantastic, but um, ultimately below the amazing potential that those vineyards have. And uh, in 2007, Achim Niederberger, who um, was an entrepreneur from Neustadt, bought the estate and had before, it was the third estate that he bought because he had before bought uh, Bassermann Jordan and Von Buhl. So reunited those three estates under one owner. Still, we are three absolutely independently run estates. It's a, it's a very important piece of history that this Jordan, uh, the separation of the Jordan estate was uh, reversed by Achim Niederberger. And with him came Stefan Atman as a um, winemaker and general manager. First vintage was 2008. And the two together convinced the von Winning family to give their name. They still exist. They live near Bavaria. Um, and uh, the winery is called von Winning again since 2007. So 2008 was the first von Winning um, vintage in the new era, let's say. Yeah. And um, the style can be described as very, very traditional, but unique from today's point of view. Because we ferment our wines, including the Rieslings, in, in oak barrels, aiming for complexity. Um, we ferment naturally in those barrels, long, full lease contact until bottling. Never aiming for oak-driven wines, but uh, great structure, uh, aromatical depth and complexity. And um, yeah, like um, great aging potential. In a nutshell, dry, fine, elegant terroir wines that um, yeah, express those amazing sites we alone have six different premier crews for for riesling eight different grand crews for in time for enforced and uh, yeah it's a kind of obligation to transport that and to bring that to the glass and to the bottle and so since 2008 this very traditional um, approach which um, was discussed quite controversially in the beginning but um, ultimately influenced a lot of winemaking, I would say, uh, in not only in the Pfalz, but in other parts of Germany too. But um, you see a few 500 liter barrels, which we um, use mostly. You know, it, it is something really unique to be um, fermenting and aging these wines in French oak barrels. It, it, it's not something that is incredibly common. And I think a lot of consumers think about oak as imparting flavor, but more than anything else, it can it can alter the texture of a wine or the feel of a wine. And it is something that's very unique. Can you talk a little bit about why a decision like that was made? I know you use the word controversial, but it is something very atypical than what people traditionally associate with Riesling. Um, what was kind of the inception for that? So first of all, when you traditionally think about Riesling, 
then it is barrel fermented. Because 50, 60 years ago, not a single wine on the planet was fermented in stainless steel. It's a rather new phenomena, which has become a kind of classic and only thing. But um, um, also back in the days, I mean, it was, of course, larger barrels, neutral barrels. We have not invented oak, absolutely not. Also, 500 liter barrels and smaller ones have been used not only for transportation, but also for fermentation and aging. So it, it's absolutely, it's the, it's the most traditional way to make wine. Let's put it like that. Of course, there was always concrete. There was amphora in some part of the world. Here it was oak. Uh, here it was oak. So it's, um, it's, a super, it's a super traditional thing. And then when you look at why Stefan decided to do it, because um, uh, he is um, a wine freak in the in the best in the best possible way and um for him and i agree by the way with that the greatest um white wines um which are very deep age extremely well express terroir in a fantastic way come from france especially from uh, from burgundy when you look at the chardonnays but also to a degree uh, the great bordeaux blancs of um of uh, Pesac Léonien, for example, wines which are elegant, but yet um, bestowed with fantastic acidity, beautiful elegance. And we're not talking about fat richness and buttery and yeah, and lactic kind of aromas. We're talking about a, an amazing raciness. And I think this the structure um, which we get from tannin, the, the phenolic compounds of the grapes. So we work with healthy grapes, hand-picked, uh, ripe but not overly ripe, aromatically, phenolically ripe but not sugar through the roof, and acidity is still a great backbone. Hand picked coming to the winery where we crush and macerate for 12 to 24 hours means the juice comes out, uh, it stays in contact with the skins and and the, the stems. The stems are there still. Uh, very there is uh, very valuable phenolic compounds on the surface of those stems, which then they go to the presses by gravity after the maturation and into the cellar by gravity and then naturally ferment in oak. And the phenolic compounds of the grapes polymerize with the tenants of the oak and give the wines a fantastic structure, which together with the acidity ultimately underlines and enhances the salinity, the saltiness of the different vineyard sites. And you are drinking, you're tasting the Kalkofen Grand Cru right now, right? I am, um, yeah. Everything I say is dancing on your palate right now. You know, it's funny because we talk about Riesling and the desire for so many winemakers to have precision and purity with Riesling, right? We, we always talk about um, German Riesling having a certain precision, um, a certain um, laser-like purity to it, right? Um, and you don't lose any of that with this wine. And I believe that the 2016 Kalkofen uh, GG that we have here, that was on lees for 24 months unracked the entire time right not not quite um we are now uh, bottling the the ggs after approximately i mean nothing that we do is dogmatic there is no recipe it's uh, we bottle the wines when it's when they are ready to be bottled but uh, if you want to generalize uh, since vintage 2017 we're bottling after about 18 months on the lease and the still that the 18 months on lees without racking is a it's a very long pretty time. long period of it's time it's a very yeah. long time yeah. 
uh, and uh, still you have the the contact with the lease you have mouthfeel you had in comparison to um, a wine that was fermented in stainless steel um, you have a tiny bit of micro oxygenization happening um, you have wines that are still I mean, still, they're very reductive because they're on the lease, which uh, works, um, uh, it prevents oxidization from happening. So you have wines that after this, those all this time are stable. They are serene. They're sitting in themselves. They have outstanding aging potential. Of course, I mean, all of this is impossible with amazing grapes. Um, I think we all know that uh, it's impossible to make a great wine out of shitty grapes uh, on the other <laughs> on the other hand side it's quite easy to make um, a shitty wine out of great grapes but um, so it's what we want to do in the cellar is, is yeah it's controlled idleness where uh, the hands are off as much as possible very little handling one movement um, after fermentation the assemblage and bottling with a very gentle filtration but that's it and uh, yeah, minimal minimal interference with the wine's inner structure is the goal. But for that, you need excellent grapes. And the vineyard manager Joachim Chayet is uh, and his team. Joachim is a is an absolute genius. I don't know anyone who is uh, who is. I mean, on his level, he's um, has more and more implemented since twelve years now. More and more leading towards bio, biodynamic uh, farming, biodynamic methods, even though. We're not certified, but um, the goal is really the um, balanced vineyard, complex ecosystem. We have not used any um, any fertilizers, any herbicides, any insecticides, nothing like that, of course. Um, a lot of plants in between the rows, rooting through the soil, bringing oxygen in, boosting microorganisms, uh, then beneficial insects. So everything is alive everything is in balance we're harvesting we're pruning after the moon we're spraying teas we're doing the horns we're doing we're doing all of that and um you taste it i mean you have to have this uh, quality in order to um be able to do this controlled idleness and head winemaker uh, the head winemaker's name is kurt ratgeber um he is also um very very good at uh, taking his hands off but also finding um, the right the right moment, and yeah, I am a winemaker myself, trained winemaker, studied viticulture enology as well. So there's, we're a good team to find the right moment to take our hands on if that is necessary. I imagine you started those practices around the time that Dinehard became von Vinning. Correct. Around 2007, 2008. Yeah. Was there any rehabilitation that needed to be done? Did anything need to get replanted? I'm, I'm curious as you transition from more conventional farming to more hands-off biodynamic leaning farming, what sort of adjustments needed to be made? You know, before the, um, the work that has been done in the vineyards was, uh, was more, way more conventional, but very, very good. So the, the vineyards were in perfect shape. There was nothing where you say, oh my God, this will take years or it is hopeless. And um, I would say with vintage, probably 2015, 2016, you could really feel a significant difference in a way that um, I would say, and it's even, we're not, we're not finished. The expression of terroir um, that you really recognize the vineyards every year, even though the years are at times, the vintages are dramatically different, is, is stronger 
than it ever was. So there is a very, very strong sense of place in the wines. And this is really our goal because the, the terroir is what is unique. And it's uh, it's very traditional and especially unique in those. Uh, I mean, I told you six different Premier Crus for Riesling, eight different Grand Crus. And uh, these are um, outstanding sites. And I can name them quickly. And uh, the Premier Crus are um, Paradiesgarten, uh, Leinhöhle, Moishöhle and Herrgottsacker of Deidesheim. And in addition to that, um, there is the uh, Ölberg of Königsbach and the Reiterfahrt of Rupertsberg. And uh, in the US, by the way, are Paradiesgarten, Leinhöhle and Reiterpfad. And then all of the Grand Crus are in the US, which are uh, in Deidesheim, uh, Greinhübel, Langenmorgen, Kieselberg and Kalkofen. And then in Forst, there is Ungeheuer, Pechstein, Jesuitengarten, and Kirchenstück. And, I mean, naming those, uh, you, you feel that these are very, very, it's a lot of sites. And they are really different up the slope, further down, sandstone, sandstone and limestone, sandstone, limestone, and basalt, southward exposed, southeastward, eastward, um, further up, further down deeper uh, or lighter soil, warmer, cooler. There are so many differences and you really taste those and you ought to taste those because this is, this is the, yeah, this is the legacy of this area. And um, I think you should do whatever you can to keep that going. <laughs> and I'm sure that's a big part of your job because you're in charge of export for Von Vinning. You're the one oftentimes that is visiting the United States or Asia, Japan, other parts of Europe to sell these wines. And a big part of that is education. A big part of that is, you know, really trying to, you know, talk to people and educate people about the faults. Because like we talked about earlier, it's it's a very diverse place. And you've got these eight different Grand Cru sites that are each very unique from one another, geologically, geographically. When you're out in the market trying to talk about these wines and talk about the faults in general and also talk about the transition that Von Vinning has made over the past couple of decades, how do you engage sommeliers or end consumers when it comes to that? You know, when I'm, when I'm traveling, the best thing is that we have fantastic partners in, um, in all those different countries. And it's, uh, you know, like everything, it's, a, it's about people. So as uh, example given when I come to the when I come to the US Skernik is setting up those uh, fantastic tastings um, where where different uh, winemakers are but uh, they invite uh, the exact right people to those and then in addition sometimes we visit um, we we do market work the first time we met was um, doing market work I remember very well uh, you gave me a, a Lone Star beer at uh, the end of the day yeah it was wonderful, and uh, it's very important to be, um, yeah, to meet the right people first of all. So they have the right mindset; they know exactly who is coming and what's happening, right? So the the, the level yeah. of of knowledge and education is very very high. So what I what I have to do then is explain the specific terroir, maybe do a recap of the area, just as we did in the beginning, explain what the Pfalz is, explain what the history is, because there are still a lot of people around that have in mind that Riesling um, from Germany is sweet and cheap. 
I told you that end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries, uh, century, the wines of Germany, the Rieslings from Rhine and Mosel were the most expensive, most sought after wines in the world. Uh, what happened in the meantime? I mean, uh, the Ungeheuer Forst, for example, was poured at the opening ceremony of the Suez Canal in Egypt in 1869. Queen Victoria had it poured. Hmm. What happened then? Two world wars, especially the second, and then stuff like Liebfraumilch and Black Tower and Blue Nun um, yeah, ruined the reputation of Germany and its wines. The quality of those high-end sites was always there, and you have to remind people of that, and you have to get the wines into people's glasses. So this is the most important part. As soon as someone tastes it, they say, oh, wow, uh, these are um, great, dry, complex white wines. I did not expect that. Of course, the professionals all over the world, they do, they know. But the task is to give them the tools, let's say, to um, make the people that come into their places to want to taste them and and understand that this is a great alternative for um, great white burgundy. If you if you love it, uh, we all know, I mean, I love it, but I know how expensive it is and uh, yeah. it's very difficult to get. And these days, um, our wines are far away from being the most expensive wines in the world. You can have um, a great uh, terroir experience and have a great wine, um, which is dry, which is complex. And uh, not only Riesling, but also Sauvignon Blanc, also Pinot Noir. We have uh, Chardonnay, we have uh, Pinot Blanc. Of course, Riesling is the main game, but still, um, it's educating the people in that. The history, the quality, the potential, and then most of all, the task, the most important part is to get the wine into people's glasses and make them taste it. I always try to be nice and tell people about the area and about the wines. That's um, that's that's how I approach this job. You mentioned a little bit earlier about the other wines that Von Vinning makes. Um, we've talked a fair bit about Riesling, but you mentioned Sauvignon Blanc, you mentioned Chardonnay, uh, sparkling wine, Pinot Noir. Um, it's a wide range of different varieties. and. Are those other varieties planted in Didesheim and in Fulst as well, or are those coming from different parts of Fulst? Both. Um, they're coming from close from the close by area, but we have our own, of course. Our, I mean, this is this is all here. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, Didesheim. We have several high density plantings in the Paradiesgarten vineyard. Sauvignon Blanc is actually our second most important variety after Riesling, uh, which finds amazing conditions. We had one older vineyard, but uh, planted more um, in in 2008 and densely. And uh, quite honestly, we knew that um, there was potential for very good Sauvignon Blanc. Just because of the geography and the climate, that's what drove that decision? Exactly. And uh, we did not expect it to be that good that quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we have three different Sauvignon Blancs, the Sauvignon 2, screw cap, uh, stainless steel fermented is clear, crisp, fresh, fruit driven, super important wine for us. And um, for me, the perfect wine with oysters. Um, I miss coming to the US also because of the amazing oysters. Yeah. yeah and, then, and then nothing on it, no vinaigrette, no lemon, just the oyster and then the Sauvignon Blanc 2. Great. Yeah. Some people in the U.S. actually started uh, started calling it the Sancerre Slayer, which is a fantastic nickname. I love it. But then this dynasty, and then we have the Sauvignon Roman One, which is barrel fermented, oak barrel, various sizes, very salty, still juicy, 
fruits, um, passion fruits, uh, our Sauvignon Blancs are not green. And that is why the conditions are so great. Aromatically ripe, exotic, um, at a point where you still have great acidity and moderate alcohol. And then being fermented in the barrels, there's something smoky, there's something roasted. So something really that you, uh, in the summer when it's warm, you said it's warm and humid. And still when yeah. you put uh, like a nice ribeye steak on your on your barbecue, this is the wine to pop open because it has the structure. It, wow, it's beautiful and juicy. And then there is a Sauvignon 500, which is the barrel selection of the most outstanding, the most aromatic, the most complex, yet finest 500 liter oak barrels out of Roman one. Um, quite rare, but this is, um, uh, yeah, this is quite fascinating Sauvignon Blanc. What was the guiding light for those Sauvignon Blancs? Was it Sancerre, White Bordeaux, in the case of uh, Roman One or Five Hundred? Rather, rather White Bordeaux. I don't know of many other producers in the faults making uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Is, was there a nursery in Germany where you got those grapes? Yes, yes you get them there, but it's also like a Selection Massal. Um, there is some clones that we have there from South Africa, but it's predominantly from. Uh, from France and Selection Massal. And um, yeah, you know, the benchmark is definitely white Bordeaux and especially because of our style. Proportionally, is there a difference between how much of that Sauvignon Blanc you sell domestically within Germany versus in the export market? Mm, there is definitely a high amount of Sauvignon Blanc being sold uh, outside Germany. The reason is, in my opinion, that um, what we talked about in the beginning, that you have still have to remind people that Riesling is not sweet and cheap. And people have um, a lot of prejudices when it comes to Riesling. And hands down, Riesling coming mostly from Germany, from cool climates, needs very special conditions, is a niche. And will remain a niche, even when now everyone remembers how great dry Riesling can be there is not a high amount of it. So it becomes a niche, whereas Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay even more so, um, which is not as sensitive when it comes to, to terroir and where it's growing, um, it finds great conditions almost everywhere in the world. And that is why people get it and people know it. And uh, many people do not know what a great Riesling tastes like, why they have pretty um, strong uh, ideas in their head about Sauvignon Blanc and also Chardonnay. So in my opinion, the Chardonnay for us was and still is a little bit of a door opener because people can put that much better into perspective and say, holy shit, this is really good. Uh, let's give the Rieslings a shot again. And okay, now I get where they are heading and aha, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's opening doors and same goes for... Chardonnay, which is, um, I think, um, a variety with a lot of potential, speaking a little bit about uh, a climate that's getting warmer. I'm not at all saying that I'm um, afraid that this is not going to be a world-class Riesling area anymore in some time, not in our lifetime, that's for sure. Uh, but the conditions in the Pfalz have always been very good. This is always uh, was a warmer area which was known for its um, ab abundance of different varieties. Also, being on and off France and Germany, there was always an influence of French varieties. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, little, but Pinot Blanc you find a lot. Um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, when it comes to red wine, you find a lot since 
a very long time. Came to Pinot Noir came to Germany uh, 880 or something, um, uh, and is since then the the most important noble variety. Germany um, third is the third largest Pinot producer in the world after the after France and the US. Um, but yeah, the conditions are great also for Chardonnay and same here. People can put it into perspective very well. We have some Chardonnays. You will see some more in interesting wines um, from that variety from, from winning in the future. Is Chardonnay the third most planted variety no. for y'all? Or No, it's, um, it's uh, Pinot Blanc is the third mm-hmm. most important. And then... Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are very, very close, but this is, we're talking about maybe 5% yeah. of red wine. It's not, it's not much, uh, but yeah. the, yeah, the potential is great. And Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir is for me uh, a little bit like, uh, like Riesling in red wine in terms of expression of terroir in finesse yeah. and elegance. It has very often in the past, it has been, let's say, mistreated is a very hard word but you know that um, in the past german winemakers of uh, earlier generations always wanted to prove that they can make um, big red wines and pinot noir mm-hmm. is most certainly not one perfect example my stepfather is hans günther schwarz who uh, was um, the is a legendary winemaker uh, was uh, the head of uh, Müller Katwa from nineteen sixty one until two thousand and one made stunning stunning white wines. So, but what I wanted to say is that Hans Günther also told me uh, now ah, he don't really. I mean, those are not all all good and all nice with the Pinot Noirs, but in his opinion, it, it a red wine has to be above hundred degrees Oechsle, which is um, which is, I mean, which is fine, but this is, in my opinion, always depends on the vintage, but can be too much. But this is, this is the still, it's still there. A red wine has to have color and a red wine has to have, um, because it was cool in Germany, you know, we are always on the northern border of the classic wine regions and um, people wanted to prove that they, that red wine, that they could make red wine. Um, and I think Pinot Noir is is absolutely about finesse and elegance, and much rather you have to you have to embrace it um, in order to have greater um, expression of terroir. Of course, I mean you have to have absolutely ripe grapes. We're talking about ar- aromatically, phenolically ripe grapes. A touch of green is absolutely wrong in a, um, in a if, in my opinion, at least. Uh, in a in a Pinot Noir, but still, I don't want uh, perfect. Is twelve and a half alcohol? That's uh, th- this is perfect. It's uh, maybe thirteen, but if you have twelve and a half, um, then then I'm happy. Yeah. So that's that's the goal. And um, I think today probably the um, the climatical conditions one, second the know how of um, a younger generation of winemakers who has. Um, a lot of experience abroad, many different areas um, of the world where they learned and trained. A lot of new approaches and a lot of different views from different angles. And I would say the quality in general, the quality of wine in um, in Germany is today higher than it ever was because um, we have a consistency 
um, of great vintages like probably never before. Back in the days, I know old winemakers that have told me that they had higher fever than degree than degrees Oechsler in in <laughs> some years. And you know, degrees in degrees Oechsler, you measure the um, the sugar, the density, the sugar of grape, and the um, uh, a Spätlese Riesling starts with uh, 85 degrees Oechsler. And you and uh, you, and if you have really high fever, it's 38 or 39 degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine how unripe some vintages were when winemakers yeah. say so. Probably they really struggled to get it ripe somehow. This is those days are gone. So so with ripeness not an issue, that's allowing winemakers to kind of explore a little bit more. When you think of the wines, uh, whether it's the Gigi Rieslings or the Pinot Noirs, you told me about the pairings for Sauvignon Blanc. How much you love them with oysters. What do you love to drink with Gigi Riesling? Yeah, you know these are these are first of all super versatile wines, and I think they are um, they fit to a lot of things. Um, classic pairings are always um, you always think about fish or seafood or poultry, uh, rather light things. But our wines, and especially the GGs, which are uh, have great concentration and density and structure and length, yet finesse and elegance. Don't here again. I'm I love it with a good steak, absolutely. Yeah. I would not go for the gravy, but um, like a, a great. I love ribeye steaks um, um, with a bit of sea salt, olive oil, grilled vegetables. This is yeah. this is pretty great, but also a, a grilled uh, mer, for example, like a nice grilled fish. Um, fantastic. Um, and then ultimately, of course, by itself. Um, I think yeah. these are definitely wines where you can can sit down with and just um, just concentrate on the wine and enjoy it um, mm -hmm. without any food. But it's it's great with yeah, so many kinds. But meat, I mean, you know, this here is um, people always when it comes to reason, ah, sushi, great with sushi. And then I always say, do you think in people the average person in the Pfalz eats sushi every day and and drinks uh, and drinks Riesling? Absolutely not. This is Germany. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, Bratwurst. This is uh, um, we have a thing called Pfalz Trilogy, which is we have it in our restaurant in Leopold as well, which is a, a housemade Bratwurst. Obviously, uh, it's a housemade uh, liver dumpling, which is veal meat um, and also and also liver is a little bit is used inside. It's quite um, it's great. Uh, and then um, Saumagen, which is, uh, again, pork meat with uh, potatoes, herbs, and so forth. And this comes with mashed potatoes and Riesling sauerkrauts. And this mm. with Riesling is wonderful. Probably not with, um, I wouldn't take the highest end wine because it can be quite intense. But still, Riesling with the acidity cuts well through it. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely great. <laughs> I'm getting hungry. Yeah, and it's about dinner time where you are. So yeah, it's six. It's a it's a it's a bit early, but um, people eat early in Germany. I'm just having you know Gigi Riesling for breakfast. That's that's what I'm doing on my it's, end. I mean, so. that's I like your style. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Von Vinning wines are available throughout the USA and are imported by Skernik. Check with your local wine retailer if you have questions. 
And if you find yourself in Didasan, make sure that you book a reservation at Leopold Restaurant. It's one of the best meals you'll have in the Falls. And if you want to learn more about these and other German wines, be sure to visit Wines of Germany at germanwineusa.com. And subscribe to Buy the Glass wherever you stream your audio. Thank you for listening, and an especially big thanks to Wines of Germany for sponsoring Buy the Glass. We'll see you all next week.